So Ruth was the Moabite woman. So she's not Jewish. She's on the east side of the Jordan River, modern Jordan. And Naomi, her husband, Elimelech, and the two boys, adult boys, they left Bethlehem, their hometown in the land of Judah, the region of the tribe of Judah in Israel, during a famine, and they went to the east, to the land of Moab, where they worship other gods, particularly Chemosh, who we call the bully god, because that's what he was. He was a bully god. And there they lived for 10 years, and when they lived there, uh, Amimelech passed away, the husband, and both boys passed away. But before the boys passed away, they took wives from the Moabite women, and they, they were married, but they didn't have children, so there was no offspring or grandchildren for Ruth and, uh, excuse me, for Naomi and uh, Amimelech. Well, the men die, and then Ruth hears there's food back in Bethlehem, that there's bread. So we left off chapter one, where she's going back to Israel after being gone for 10 years. When they left Israel, they would have left behind their property. They sold their property, which was a form of income and probably where they lived and what was their inheritance that God had decreed for them. They'd given it up. So she's going back now to, her, to the promised land of Israel, to where she came from, her hometown, empty-handed, without her husband, without her boys. And the only person going back with her is Ruth. So Naomi, whose name means pleasant, is going back with Ruth, her daughter-in-law, the Moabite. So we know from the story that Naomi had exhorted both girls, you're young, go remarry, start it over, get your life going again with someone else, you can do this, and thank you for loving me. And we saw in chapter one where the women cried together two different times, but the one daughter-in-law did go back to her own family, but Ruth insisted on being with Naomi, and she said, your God will be my God, your people will be my people, and I'm going to be up by your side till the end of the journey for you. That strong commitment all in, totally with her. Then in chapter 2, we saw how Ruth went out in the fields, and this is biblical, it was in God's word, in God's law, that the poor could go in the wheat fields, the barley fields, and when the reapers came through, whatever they left behind, they could glean and take. That was God's provision. That was his social program for those in need. And so Ruth went to the field of one of the, the relatives of the family, Boaz, and she gleaned. And there in that field, she had the conversation with Boaz. She found favor in his eyes. That was a topical study a couple weeks ago. And Boaz was very kind to her. He's a generation ahead of her. So we know that Boaz was one generation above her. And he was very kind to her. And he made sure that she had plenty of stuff. He commended her for being a blessing to Naomi because Boaz, of course, knew Naomi. They were relatives. And he spoke well of her, Ruth, what she'd done for Naomi. And so chapter 2 ended with just the blessing that Ruth had found favor in Boaz's eyes. She had a field she could work in to provide for her and Naomi, and Naomi was rejoicing over that. Then in chapter 3 was the whole story where it really caught traction, and we, we have to review all this because it all goes together. If we don't review this, you don't even know what we're coming into tonight in chapter 4. So there in chapter 3, also according to God's word and according to his law, Ruth went into the threshing floor the, where they were threshing the wheat, and this would have been about six weeks later because the barley comes first, then the wheat. And there Boaz had laid down with some of his workers in, the, if you will, the barn where they were working and doing all their work. And under the counsel of Naomi, she went and laid down at his feet because he's the Goel, which means the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer. And so he can redeem the property that Naomi's husband and her had sold years before. He can redeem it back to the family. And he also, as the Goel, can raise up offspring 
for the line that was broken. So uh, Elimelech's two sons died, but the inheritance would go through them. But in God's law, there was provision for the Goel to step in, a brother, provide a son, an heir, and the, the, the inheritance would continue in the family line that way. And Boaz was a Goel that could redeem back the land they had lost and be, become grafted in to provide offspring for Naomi one generation beneath where her sons had passed away. This is the backdrop. God really cares about inheritances, and he cares about lineage and all that stuff, particularly in the Old Testament, and this is the story. So Ruth goes in, lays at his feet, and she essentially says to him, when he was startled in the middle of the night, he's like, what are you doing here? And she says, I am Ruth. Uh, redeem me. So basically she said, marry me. You have the power to marry me. I'm asking you to marry me. And he said, I will. It's a beautiful story. We covered it both verse by verse and topically last week. But in that, he said, but there, I will do it, but there's one closer than me, another Goel who's in front of me, but I will, I will pursue this and, and do this. So they, that morning, she, slept, she spent the night at his feet. He woke up. They woke up early in the dawn. He gave her wheat to take home to Naomi to show just the support for the family. And Naomi said to Ruth, listen, the man will do what he said he's going to do because he's not messing around. He's going to go find that other Goel and determine your covering. And in the backdrop of chapter 3, Naomi had said to Ruth, I want to get you security. I want you taken care of. And this is the whole background to the stories we come to tonight. So as we come to chapter 4, Ruth has come to a man one generation older than her, and ask him to marry her and be her security, her covering, her goel. That man, Boaz, has agreed to do it, but he can't do it until they clear up things with the other goel, because the goels is like uh, how close you are as a relative. And there's literally a pecking order. So if like, like a high school football team, you have three quarterbacks. That's your starting quarterback, your backup, and your third-string quarterback. And the way the Goel worked in God's economy is there's clearly the closest relative, the next closest relative, and another one, another one, until you get like the cousin twice removed and an uncle or something, right? That's the way it worked. So Boaz knew he was number two relative, and there's another one in front of him. But he's, she's asked him to marry her. He's committed to marry her. They spent a night together in purity. And now they come to chapter four. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, and sit down here. And so he came aside and sat down. And he, that is Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, sit down here. So they all sat down. And then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech, and I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of all the inhabitants and elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And so that relative said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, mm, well, on the, day, uh, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also Buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. A good portion of chapter 4 is the dialogue, what happened the very same day that Ruth and Boaz slept next to each other in the threshing room. Because that started at midnight, remember? Chapter 3 is midnight. This is the same day. This is the same day. Boaz is on it. He's got it going. He's a man who gets things done. We know he's a blessing man. He's a benevolent man. He speaks to the Lord. He's about the Lord and all that stuff. So we see here in the beginning that he presents the situation to his relative. And the relative's like, oh, yeah, I'll, man, for sure. I'll, I'll, I'll take that property. I'll go for that. He's financially, so the other relative is strong enough financially to buy that property. Because just because you're next in line doesn't mean you can buy the property, right? Like you probably look at houses and think, well, I'd like to live in that house, but you can't buy it. So just because you think that'd be a nice plot of land to have or whatever doesn't mean you, you get to have it. Like you have to, to if someone says, I'll sell this, I'll sell this plot to you. In, over Salt Creek, you know, Dana, Dana Point, Dana Strand. I'll sell, I'll sell you, I'll, I'll put you the front of the line to buy this, to buy this house with this view of Dana Strand. What then do you get if you can't come up with 20 million to buy the house? So this Goel, this supreme Goel, not known by name, interestingly enough, he financially could buy the land. He, had, he, was, he was good with resources. He said, I can buy that land and I'll buy that land back. I can do that. But to commit to Ruth, the widow, the Moabitess woman, I, I can't do that. I, I can't do that. That's not, no, that jeopardizes my inheritance, and that's not something I can do. It's not something I want to do. It's not something I'm going to do. That's, that's not going to happen. If it's just the land, yeah, but the girl, I, I'm not interested in doing that. I don't, I don't want to do that. That's what? Now, remember with Ruth, there's two things to consider. First of all, we talked about this. God pronounced a curse on the Moabites back to the time of Balaam and Balak when the Israelites were coming through that land hundreds of years before to the 10th generation. And this is fascinating to me because depending on how the timeline falls, Ruth is right about the 10th generation. She could be the 9th or 10th. She might be the 11th or 12th. We don't know. Like, she's right there in that gray zone. If you consider a generation's 40 years and you put 400 years together, she's right on the bubble either way. So for a Jew, where the Moabites were perpetual enemies, you know, you're just like, man, I don't know, man. That's a lot. You know, like, when, when you have blended families, when people have previous kids, of course, many of you grew up watching... For me, it was the Brady Bunch, right? Like, a blended family. That's, that affected every baby boomer. You know, like, the Brady Bunch, like, two blended families. And that's the thing about a blended family is you're, you're, you're committing to this person, but you're committing to raise their children as well, to be involved with the children. And usually there's a former spouse that you have to see every other weekend or see at the softball games or the wedding or the bar mitzvah or quinceanera. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're, 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 they're still in the picture. And so you need to count the cost in that situation. And this guy's like, no, that's not going to work. Whether it's because she's a widow and a Moabitess, or I just don't like that part of the family, I just want the land, it's just, he's not going for it. So that's, that's, that's the big one with, with Ruth right there. That's a big factor that you're, you're going you're gonna to take on 
You ain't taking on the Moabites. Now, the other thing about Ruth that we need to bear in mind is the story Jesus told when the Sadducees came to him. Because the Sadducees came to Jesus, and they took this, this Goel, kinsman, redeemer principle. Because the Goel redeemer was to, to look out, could redeem back your property back to you if you sold it in a hard time. Could raise up offspring for you if you died off without offspring. Or if to avenge you being murdered, they could be your Goel and your advocate to avenge your murder and make sure justice took place. There were different things the Goel did. But that inheritance thing is hard for us to understand. It's hard for us in a Western culture to understand the inheritance, the legacy of a brother stepping in for his brother who's passed away to provide offspring for that wife for the inheritance of his brother's line in Israel. There's nothing in our world here in America or most of the Western world that helps us to wrap our mind around that one. So it's a little bit, you know, it's just contextual. It's a little bit hard for us to understand. Well, it was hard for the Sadducees to understand. The Sadducees were earth-focused. They were not heavenly-focused. Their theology was all about earth, much like modern liberals in the church. It's all about earth-based theology. So they came to Jesus and said, hey, you know, and they took the Goel Redeemer thing, and they're like, hey, so like, how is it like, so a man died, and he had no kids, and then the brother took the wife, and then the next brother, no kids, the next brother, all seven married her. They, none of them had kids. In heaven, whose wife is she? So like men do when they sit around in ivory towers and philosophize about things with God, they came up with this scenario that theoretically could happen, but it's ludicrous and probably never has happened. And Jesus said, you are greatly mistaken not knowing the power of God or the things of God. It's one of the strongest rebukes he gives. He tells them, you, you, you totally misunderstood what this Goel story is about that we just read right here. Because we read about the Goel in Deuteronomy but this is where we get an example of it in the Old Testament. And then they came to Jesus with their hypothetical situation to accuse Jesus or somehow make God seem unfair or ludicrous in this part of the law. But God's law is good. It doesn't save us, but it's good and it's just and it's noble and praiseworthy. And Jesus said they neither are given in marriage in heaven, but are like the angels. They're in glory. So that very story that most of us are familiar with with Jesus and the Sadducees is in the context of right here with what's going on in the gates of Bethlehem, the city gates right here. This is that application happening with Boaz truly in the scriptures in a beautiful way in what God intended in his law, not in some hypothetical, ludicrous way that earthly men conjecture in their mind to come to Jesus and accuse him of. So with Ruth, we need to keep those two things in mind. She's the Moabitess, and she actually is a woman that's on behalf of Naomi because she's the widowed daughter-in-law of Naomi by which she would marry one of the brothers or the nearest relative to provide offspring for the family. That's our context here. So Boaz is all in, but this other relative is not. And there's a phrase here that gets our attention in application right away. You'll see it in verse 4. You love how he gets the witness, too. Like, he, he's going to get the woman. I, I mean, I've said this before. I, I, we're not robots. We're humans. And, and God loves human beings. And he's designed men and women to love each other and to come together in marriage. That's why in Hebrews we're told that marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. Sex is a beautiful thing in the context of marriage. That's why he says that in Hebrews 13. And you look at Adam and Eve in their garden before sin, and they're naked and they're not ashamed. It's a beautiful thing. 
But because of sin and selfishness, we've got to put up with stories like Samson, what he did in the book of Judges, that scars us and we think that that's what intimacy is all about. But what intimacy is about with the Lord is something beautiful. And we have to take that into account in this story. I truly believe this man wanted to marry this woman. And yeah, he's going to fulfill his obligation because he can. He is a go-well. This man could have married any other younger women of Israelites. There's something about this woman, I believe, that attracted him, and he wanted to marry her, and he was willing to marry her. But being an older man, he was probably very insecure about that. And he could have gone to her and said, hey, I'm your go-well. I'm second in line. Would you be interested in me being your security? But he didn't do that. But Ruth came to him, and she said, I want you to be my husband. And when that happened in chapter 3, remember what he said, you are more blessed in the end than the beginning because you could, have, you could have married any of these young men in Israel, rich or poor, but you've asked me. So by his own confession, he's saying, however her personality, her looks, or anything like that were, he said, you could have chosen any of the young men in Israel, rich or poor, but you've chosen to marry me. So there, we might call them the odd couple in a way, but not really. There's a destiny with both of them. There's a destiny with both of them. Because Boaz is the Goel. He's second in line to fulfill what the law of God has for, for Naomi through her daughter-in-law, Ruth. That's, we talked about divine destiny on Saturday night in topical application from chapter 3, and he is that guy. And Ruth is that Gentile woman with no Jewish background who comes out of nowhere and gets grafted into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So you have this man one generation older who blesses the Lord, who persevered during the famine and the difficult times to become prosperous and is a leader and an influencer and one of the heads of the city and the city gates on a day like this, respected by all. Remember, he went to work and he blessed everybody and what did his employees do? They blessed him back. Almost every sentence will... Almost every sentence out of this man's mouth in this book, he's blessing the Lord. It was in him. Like, that's what he's all about. He's all about the Lord. Whereas Ruth is interesting because she said, your God will be my God. She didn't know much about Jehovah, but she was sure she wasn't going to serve Chamesh and the Moabite gods. She was going to, her life was dedicated. When she turned her back on her people, her high school peers, her family, her parents, everybody, her life was dedicated. To, you know, it's like the cross before me, the world behind me. She is all in for one thing, to serve Jehovah, God of Israel, God of the burning bush, the God of Mount Sinai. So in that sense, they are equally yoked because he's a spiritual man serving Jehovah, and she's a spiritual woman, Gentile, who wants to uh, serve Jehovah as well. And Jehovah's people will be her people. So they're equally yoked. Spiritually, they're equally yoked. One's a Gentile, one's a Jew. And of course, the typology, the typologies are all over the story of Christ for the church, right? Because Jesus, Jesus is the bride, the, the husband, or the groom, the Bible tells us, and the church is the bride. That's the figurative speech we get for the church tonight in the New Testament. And we've got a wedding feast in front of us. And the groom is Jesus, and the church is the bride. And there's a wedding feast in Revelation. Revelation 5, Jesus holds a scroll to redeem everything, to redeem planet Earth, redeem the universe from sin, and redeem his church to glory. So obviously the figurative, 
typologies of Christ over this book are unquestionably over this book. For Christ, the head of the church, and the church itself as the bride of Christ. So it's beautiful. And now this first Goel is out of the way, not known by name, but unwilling. And we see here, before he was out of the way, that Boaz says, I'm next after you. I'm next after you. And this really has me thinking about who's next. You know, in the Bible and in the human experience, we all know that generally someone's here and then someone replaces them. Pastor Chuck Smith, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, then Pastor Brian Brodison, his son-in-law. Brian Brodison was next. When Jeff, when Steve May stepped into eternity at South Bay, Jeff Gill, our good friend, the janitor from Calvary Vista in the 80s, became the pastor of Calvary Chapel South Bay. When Moses died on this side of the Jordan River, Joshua took them over on that side. Joshua was next. When Judas hung himself, Matthias was next. The replacement apostle in chapter 1 of the book of Acts. There's next. There's next. The kingdom of God doesn't stop because one woman or one person is no longer in that position. It goes forward. And the baton of the gospel and the stewardship of the church and the keys of the kingdom are passed on from generation to generation under various ministries and various circumstances throughout life. And that's how we're here tonight. In the book of Esther... When Mordecai exhorted his relative Esther to go in before the king to save the Jewish people in the decree that would wipe him out, he said, who's not to say you're in this position for such a time as this, but know this, if you do not go in, deliverance will come from another. It will come, but it's your opportunity. You're in this place to do it, but if you don't do it, it will come from another source. The opportunity for next. The thing about Boaz that's interesting to me about being next, of course, biologically in his gene pool, he's next just by decree that he's the Goel and the relationships to Elimelech and this situation that arose. If, he's, if it's a trust and they're successor trustees, the first trustee is the relative that said, I'll take the land, I'll buy back the land, but I did not want to marry this Moabite woman and produce children for her. That wrecks my inheritance. He's the first trustee. But Boaz is his second trustee. Most trusts have a first trustee, a second trustee, and a successor trustee, if you know much about legal documents with wills and trusts. And if for some reason this person can't do it, then that person steps aside, and that's why when someone puts together a will and a trust in a state, they have this person who's going to run all the legal stuff when I'm gone, and the trust will run itself, but they're over it to make sure it all goes the way it's supposed to. But if they're not willing to do it, then there's a second person, and then a third person. This is successor trustee. Boaz is successor trustee. Which means is, if there's a chance we're going to be called up, we want to be ready to be called up. It's like if you're the backup quarterback, you're always prepared to be the quarterback. You got to always have your head in the game if you're a backup quarterback. Our son Luke was varsity backup quarterback as a freshman for Calvary Chapel High School. And he had the clipboard, and those backup quarterbacks are writing down every single play that's happening, and they have to have their head in the game. Because if the quarterback goes down, what do we see happens? The backup is immediately taking snaps and throwing the ball. You have to be ready to go in. John Wooden, the greatest coach of all time, said, prepare yourself for your moment and your opportunity. 
And all those backups at UCLA, he said, you have to be ready. And Swen Nader was one of the ultimate backups behind Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And when he got his time, he went on to be an incredibly successful NBA player. And then he said that, Coach Wooden said, you got to always be ready for your moment. You got to be ready to step up when your time comes. So I look at this and I think there's just a basic application that he was next. And that means that he was ready. He wasn't just the person biologically called to do it, but he was a person spiritually ready to do it. He was ready to lay aside his inheritance and whatever life he had as a single man at that point in time and marry this woman to use his money to buy back the land that was lost and to marry the Moabite widow and produce an offspring with her that isn't really her heir or his heir, but Naomi's heir. He was ready. He was ready for what was next and his role in it. So the first application is, are we ready for what might be next for us and the application that God might bring our way through it? I ask myself, am I preparing myself for what's next? Now, I don't see myself stepping and replacing anybody anywhere or any such a thing, but as a pastor, I always prepare someone to replace me. What do you think I've been doing with Sam Coca for two years? He's prepared to replace me. If I step into eternity this week, he's going to be your pastor. And he's next. We need to be ready for what's next and to step up if we're the one to fill in. How would I could be the apostle to replace Judas? Well, it's there in Acts chapter 1. And he did. He said, I'm next. And he was ready. In fact, when Ruth came to him in the middle of the night, he goes, oh, you're right, but there's another, and I'm going to go talk to him right now. He was ready. We want to be ready. For next. You know they say in basketball, street ball, right? I got next. Be ready for next. Be ready to step up, not shrink back. You know when Saul was being coronated as king, you know where he was? He was hiding behind the supplies. First king of Israel is hiding behind the supplies. I don't want to be hiding behind the supplies when God says, you're next, you're in, go. I've never pitched before. Well, you're going to pitch now. You get 10 warm-up pitches, figure it out, throw strikes, right? So touch in Little League. What do you tell a kid in Little League when he's eight years old? Hey, dude, aim for the mitt, throw strikes. But you're next. Be ready for next. Boaz was ready. Then we also see, you must also, in verse 5, this is interesting, but you must also, you must also. See, sometimes, you know, we say in America, like, what, you have your cake and eat it too? Like, we have this idea, like, oh, we want the lottery, but not the the with the work that puts in to earn the lottery. We want a lot of money given to us, but we don't understand the process of learning how to handle money to get there in the first place so you can be entrusted with a lot of money. We like the shortcut. If you want to be playing for a CIF championship in football with modern day in early December in Orange County, you're going to be running sprints in July over there off Bristol in 90-degree heat in the afternoon when your friends are at the beach body surfing in Newport. Like, you don't just get to buy the land. There's a responsibility with, with Ruth. See, you must also, you know, there's a contingency here. 
Hey, I'll buy the land, sure. No, you must also do this. Which really brings us to counting the cost and really being all we're meant to be and not being afraid of what also means. Because sometimes we just like this part of a job, but not that part of a job. But this is your job, and part of it you like and part of it you don't. It doesn't matter. It's both part of the job. If you want to work with kids and coach the Olympic surf team and have a lot of fun with that, travel the world, that's great. That's awesome. Gold medal on your neck. Wonderful. But you also, you got to deal with their parents. And you got to deal with their sponsors and the emails and the ugly stuff that human beings do to one another when they think their kids are gold medalists when they're 13. And you got to deal with presidents of companies calling and saying things to you that aren't true. And you gotta, you got to have two red-eye flights to get to Japan, and you got to figure out a way to get these kids safely to this hotel in the middle of the night, and then you got to go find food for the middle of the night when nothing's open. There's an also to it. There's an also to it. You know, when you get married, what do we say? You know, in sickness and in health, for worse or for better, you get both. When my son-in-law, Nate, I mentioned Jacob and Leah getting married on Saturday, but when Nate and Hannah got married, I felt like a veteran because I already given up one daughter in marriage. And our in-laws, Jim Gallagher, he was doing this first part of the ceremony. He, he was so nervous, he was shaking. I loved it. It was beautiful. It was great to see Jim Gallagher nervous. But they got me up there and for part of the ceremony. And, you know, I just did the easy part. I looked at Nate, and I go, dude, you want to kiss the girl? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> okay, then, good. I did the easy part. I said, like, you know, you love my daughter. You're in love with her. You want to kiss her. You want to take her home and be with her as a man and with a woman. And that's a beautiful thing. So enjoy your wedding day, and let's dance till midnight. I gave him the good stuff. His dad gave him the real stuff in sickness and in health, for poor and for richer. I let Jim Gallagher say the things you need to hear. But it really is the whole thing, right? You don't just get to kiss the girl when she's young. You might be taking care of the girl when she's older or vice versa. You need to count the cost. We want the crown of glory, but we don't like the cross of shame. But the life of disciple includes both. We get the cross and the death sentence to our pride, our flesh, and everything worldly because we're going to get a crown that's everything is glorious and eternal and beautiful. We don't just get to have the crown, but we get the cross too. And in there, we really understand the value of the crown because we carried the cross. So you must also yeah. To, to walk with Jesus, we get beautiful things. We get peace. We get forgiveness. We get hope. That's an anchor to the soul. We get all these things. But you must also know what it's like to be rejected by your peer group. To be demonized by people that are evil, who make what's good bad and what's bad good. And to walk away without saying a word and let them have the final word, when by every word they're speaking, they're fools and liars serving the father of lies. And that's just the way it is sometimes. I want to step up. 
Yeah, this I like, this I don't like, whatever, but all in, must also. And then again, look at verse 6. The guy, the other relative, uh, the, the, the primary Goel, twice in verse 6 he says, I cannot, for I cannot. He's like, I can't do it. That's an interesting phrase, too, worth considering in application as well, because some things we can do and some things we can't. I cannot do it. And it's not necessarily quitting. Sometimes just counting the cost or realizing you just, I can't do this. Think about Paul the Apostle in the book of Acts when they started to go into Bithynia in modern Turkey. We're told in the book of Acts that they, it's a mountain pass. They got going on a journey. He's the leader of this ministry team in the book of Acts, a new team. He's got Timothy and uh, Silas, and they're going for it. And it's like, I, can, I cannot, we can't do this. This is not the way we're supposed to go. And it's humbling to say, I can't do this, or this is not what we're called to do. I can't do this, and, and turn around. And, and they had, the, the Lord forbid them, so it would have been worse to go forward and just kick against the goads and be fighting God. It's, you can't do this. You know, when I quit the Olympic surf team and coaching the Olympic program, I felt like a quitter. Like, and I, I don't normally, ever, like my kids, when they did Little League, all my kids knew, you start a sport, you finish the season. Yeah, you're on a baseball team that never won a game. And January to, to June's a long time to lose 40 games. I understand. But we seal the fruit. So it was really hard for me when I was called to let go of the Olympic coaching with USA Surfing. It was hard because I was also, as some of you know, I was part of the coaching cohort with 14 other Olympic head coaches. And it was a two-year commitment, and I was one year into it. And the Lord made very clear I was to step down in December of 2018 from coaching and to let go of the Olympic dream and all that. And um, as I look back, I could have never gone on with it. And it was hard, you know, because I'd completed a world junior championship and it was a good time from the coaching perspective of the surfing to, to step aside right before the Olympic dream. Of course, I got blown up. Who even know? That was a year before COVID. But then... Also, though, but I had a whole other year to be in this coaching thing, and I let that go. And I remember, that, like, the Olympic coach was like, Joey, like, how, how can you just stop? I'm like, I cannot do it. I've got to focus on the church. I've got to focus on the ministry. I've got to focus on worship generation. I can't do both. I, can't be the, I cannot be the Olympic coach of surfing, and I cannot be the coach of worship generation anymore. I cannot do them both. And if I got 10 years left in my life, I'm not going for gold in Los Angeles. I'm going for gold before the throne room of God. I cannot do it. And, you know, this text just reminds me, even the Goel, give him credit, he didn't even try because he knew he couldn't do it. And it's, okay. it's good for us to know when we can't do something. Listen to me. It's good for us to know when we cannot do something. It's humbling to say, I cannot do this. I'm not capable of doing this. I'm not called to do this. Maybe you want to do it. Maybe you don't. But it's really important. Give the go-all credit. He says, I, can, I cannot do this. And give him credit for it. Because sometimes you say, you know, I can't do this. I can't coach the surf team anymore. I just can't do it. I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I can't do it. I cannot do both anymore. I just can't do it. And it's okay. That's a sign of, of just getting, recognizing what you're not called to do and trying to recognize what you are called to do. It's okay to say no. And in ministry particularly, you learn early on, you have to say no, because otherwise you'll just be doing what everyone pushes your buttons to do. you got to do what God's calling you to do. And I give this Goel credit because twice he says, I can't do it. 
I cannot do it. So that's those first seven verses, and now the story, that's the key points of tonight, most applications in those first few verses, and now here we get the back end of the chapter. Again, a very short chapter, only 22 verses. Verse 8, um, so they, they did the confirmation, they exchanged the sandal. In the law, you're supposed to spit on the person. Evidently, they didn't spit on each other. Um, <laughs> that's, that's left out of this detail here, but it is there in, previously in the Old Testament that, you know, when they don't do it, you spit on them. But I think they said, they do take my shoes. It's all good. I'm good. You're good. Here's the sandals. All right. Verse 8. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal, and Boaz said to the elders of all the people, You are witnesses this day that I bought all that was Imimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Mahalon's. Those are the two sons of Imimelech. From the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahalon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are all witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate, the elders said, we are witnesses. And then listen what the people did. So this, this is a beautiful scene. It's like, picture the movie. And so the, the, the community, now the, the community and people talk about one another. They all have an opinion. They have an opinion about Boaz. They have an opinion about the Moabite woman. They, everyone has an opinion just like you do and I do. So they said, the Lord make the woman, that's Ruth, who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah of the Old Testament, right? Jacob's wives. Uh, who are the parents of Israel, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Epiphath and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So the people, the, the deal, the deal they, they seal the deal, the contract, if you will, the confirmation, verse 7 said, and they exchanged the sandal, and then, you know, Boaz is excited. He's like, you're all witnesses. You're all witnesses. You're all witnesses. And then they say, we are witnesses. And so, and they, they, they proclaim their approval and say, may this woman, think about this. This is a Moabite woman who's a widow. May this woman be like, you know, Leah and Rachel. May she just, may she just give offspring. May she just bring blessings May, may you prosper. So look, at, it says uh, the may are there. So may you prosper and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, the original house of Judah of the 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, these are all, all these people are of the tribe of Judah. So they're going back to the very beginning, right? Because Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, the 12 tribes. Here's Judah. And they're saying, and, and Judah Mary Perez, or had the wife, and then had the kids, and this is the line. And so now, 500 years later, actually 800 years later, they're saying, may this Moabite woman be like the two great women in the history of Israel, the wives of Jacob, before Israel even was even 12 sons and 12 tribes. May she be like that. That's what they're saying. They're, they're, they're speaking blessings. They're speaking good things. They're affirming good things. They're, and again, Boaz blessed everybody, so it makes sense that people would bless him back, but now they're blessing the woman that he's committed to marry. May you prosper and be famous. And boy, didn't they, right? Who's more famous on planet Earth than King David and Jesus Christ? Like, seriously. King David is their great-grandson. There are so many people who don't even know the name of Jesus, but know the story of David and Goliath. 
David is, David is as famous as any human being that's ever lived. He wrote all those beautiful psalms. He's amazing. It's hard to be more famous than David, except Jesus Christ, who they called the son of David a thousand years later. David wrote Psalm 23 in the fields of Bethlehem in the same community, in the same town, three generations later. The angels broke through time, space, and matter to declare to shepherds a thousand years after that that Jesus the Messiah was being born in a barn in Bethlehem. What they spoke came to pass. And it's not like they created this reality. It was God's reality, but they were in tune with it and spoke in agreement with it. Because who can go against the Lord and prosper? They're just in line with what God's going to do. You know, we want to be the people that bless people. We want to be the people and see the best for a wedding day even if everyone else thinks they're the odd couple. We, we want to trust that God has a plan and think the best because love believes all things, hopes all things, bears all things because love never fails. We want to believe the best in people's lives. And we want to speak the best in people's lives. And we want to see them prosper spiritually in every other facet of their life. I want to see people prosper Prosper spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, and economically. Because a person that prospers economically, by the way, is in a position to bless other people who have less. It doesn't mean if you don't have more, it doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means that you are what you are. We support people around the world that can't do anything to change their, their lot in life economically. They can't just go to community college at OCC. They live in an orphanage in Uganda. There's nothing they can do in their wheelhouse to change their plight except be fruitful with whatever amount of minas God gave them in that sense of the parable of the mina in Matthew 25. But if we have 10 minas and we get 20 and we can do something to improve their world, then good for us and our stewardship. So I do want to see you prosper. I want to see your investments prosper. I want to see your kids prosper with strong walks in the Lord. I want to see your grandkids rise up in 20, 30 years from now and lead this nation to prosper with the things of the kingdom. And I want to do everything I can while I'm still alive to set them up to do so. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Let's believe blessings. Let's speak blessings. Let's be blessings. And not sit back and go like, dude, Boaz and Ruth? Who cares about your opinion? And who cares about mine? It's like we told our kids all the time growing up, you know, just because you think it doesn't mean you need to say it. Your brain's a filter. Now, some of those kids we had to tell that to more than the other kids. But what's it matter? People we love are fighting for their life. People we love to step into eternity. People we love are going to face tragedy in 2022 and 2023, right? Like, who's going to be petty? Who's got time? to sit back and judge a jury of other people and the decisions they make in their personal lives. We want to be a blessing to people. Even if you feel like they're making bad decisions, we want to be a blessing to them. Like my mom to my sister when she was homeless. My mom always believed the best for my sister, even though she lived behind a dumpster, behind the dollar store in Vista for five years, pushing a grocery cart. My mom always believed the best for my sister, that there was a better day coming for her. And it did come, and it has come. 
and she's thriving with Jesus in Vero Beach, Florida. Salesperson of the month, Home Depot. Yeah, we want to be like, we want to be the people who go like, that's so weird, Boaz marrying her. No, no, just pronounce blessings, pronounce dreams and visions of glory for the kingdom in that situation. For what you sow, you will reap. And if you're a person that sees the best for other people and the best of God's purposes on their life, then you're going to be the person that receives the best of God's purposes on your life. I was reading about these neurological studies with the human brain. It's a fact that you're more successful if you smile than if you frown. People actually get Botox where it affects their countenance, where they smile instead of frown. It's a fact. Without doing anything else, it affects the, the neurological elements of their brain to be more successful. People that speak positive things to other people are more successful than people that speak negative things. And it's not like we have some universal power to control the universe, but you know kind of how you, what you speak you, shapes a lot about your perspective. So believe the promises, speak the promises, and trust in the promises for our own lives and for others. And finally, we, we close out verse 13. Now, just look at this. This is the final scene of this, this, this book. This is the final narrative. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, obviously sexually. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Let me just point out that the Lord is in the middle of this sentence. Did you catch that? The Lord was in the pronouncements of blessings upon them, and the Lord is in the middle of this sentence. The Lord is in this marriage. From start to finish, how they met, how they progressed in their relationship, how they committed to each other. And here in the verse where they get married, they're intimate and have a child that says, and the Lord, the Lord gave her conception. That's such a beautiful verse. Verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel, and may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her bosom, and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There's a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. That's the first offspring from Judah. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salom. Salom begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. So the last verse sets us up for the book of 1 Samuel, which we'll be going to next week because 1 Samuel ultimately really is about the life of David the amazing second king of Israel, the man who had a heart for the Lord. But they said, the village said, may the Lord do this for you and may the Lord do that. And then here again in verses 13 through 15, the women say, bless the Lord. And then they say, may his name be famous in Israel. So again, they're pronouncing blessings and may he be to you a store of life and a nurture of your age, old age. And that's exactly what this child became in Naomi's life. Because ultimately, Naomi is the grandmother. There's not a biological connection other than through Boaz, who's a relative to, you know, horizontally, right? Because 
Ruth is a Moabitess, so genealogy, uh, biologically, she's not connected to Naomi. And the child coming from Obed is not of that line, but of the, still the close relative. And so it is perpetuated. And there is a son. Now, she didn't nurse the son. The old King James actually says nurse. It's not really, that's not really what the word means. It's like, like a nanny is more like the, the correct term in understanding uh, what it's saying that she is here. But in this final scene for the book of Ruth, we have Naomi who once said in chapter one, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara for bitterness. And here now in the end of this book, she has this grandson on her lap and the joy the sheer joy of this grandson. You, just, you have to picture this grandson like just the joy. First time grandparents, they just go over the top because it's so awesome to have that grandkid. It's like just off the charts, awesome. And then you get more like we do, you just count them like arrows, you're like, poo, poo, poo. you know, like it's just so awesome. Oh, it's just so awesome that first time you hold a grandchild. It's, it's completely different than the first time you hold your child, if you have a child. Similar, but not really. Very different. Very different, if the grandparents know what I mean. Very different. The last scene of this book is so joyful because it's this baby for the woman who said, because it really, the book's called Ruth, but it's also about Naomi. And, and here's Naomi with this child and all the beautiful things. There's, there's no darkness in this book. There's no evil in this book. There's no Samson going down to the harlot, you know, in, in the camp of the Philistines. There's no Delilah cutting his hair off. There's just, there's, there's no stabbing Eglong, the fat king or something. You know, there's just, a, there's nothing bad in this book. It's beautiful. Like, I really enjoyed this book. He's like, wow, what a great book. It's a beautiful love story. And over it all was the scriptures because the Lord was involved in all of it. And even though Naomi would say, call me bitter, here in the end, she's filled with joy. And so it's like the, the movie's over and it, and it comes up to end, you know, the end, like those old 60s movies, like the Cecil B. DeMille movies, like the end, and you feel good. But like the newer movies, then there's a, uh, an epilogue that says like, and, and the child grew and eventually David was born. And then Jesus, like, like, the story just goes on. This story is, this four-chapter book is so critical in the entire scriptures because it really does show us that Jesus is our redeemer, our Goel, that he redeems us from Satan, the grave, and the power of sin, and that we're his bride. And as Boaz was the, the, the Goel redeemer for Ruth, the Gentile woman, Christ is our redeemer. And it elevates so much more beyond a beautiful human story of love and people coming together and having a child and doing the right thing and doing it selflessly for, for each other and for the community and the blessings of the community. The story is so beautiful, but it's so much deeper than that because the love that God has for us is so much more than human beings have for each other, even between a man and a woman in marriage. It's so beautiful. So that last word says, Jesse begot David. And that is the key to us, because from David came Jesus, our Savior. Praise the Lord. Our King and Savior, who, will, who has redeemed us, will redeem us, and ultimately will redeem the entire universe with trillions of galaxies. That's the hope of the church tonight.